This fall, man, it's very tough. Um, in this fall, I'm gonna take my talents to South Beach and um, join Remember That Guy, the show where we mine our memories for nuggets of nostalgia about peripheral players, past and present. Hey, folks, I'm one of your hosts, James, and I'm here forming my own big three. Dwayne Wade shrugging as James is ready to slam that ball through the hoop. Justin Diaz back with you again, and uh, the third member of our big three is in fact not a dinosaur, contrary to popular belief. Wasn't a raptor either, but please introduce yourself. And hopefully, you know, I don't have blood clots either. Fingers crossed. I do love Chris Bosh. He got done dirty. The entire season that he were doing it at camp, anytime we got snakes that we like added to the reptile collection of the nature, they just got named Chris Bosh, Chris Bosh 2, Chris Bosh 3. I think there were like 27 Chris Boshes at one point. Well, there Chris had Bo- been 27 Chris Bosh. Chris Bosh was so good that people forget how good he was because he willingly chose to take the back seat. Like even as the third option, he was incredible. But if you look back on the start of his career with Toronto, he was incredible. Chris was on like historic paces and then willingly sacrificed personal stats for titles. He crafted his game so much to what is the ideal third player next to LeBron James and Dwayne Wade. Because in Toronto, like, he was, you know, getting the ball in the high post, getting it on the low block, really just their entire offense. And then he kind of becomes, honestly, like, the prototype for the small ball five that you kind of look for today, where, hey, Mm -hmm. shoot the three, defend the rim, switch on to guards out on the perimeter. Chris Bosh is really the first guy to do that. Like, as much as Curry has an influence on the way that guards are willing to take those long-distance shots today and uh, gravity... Bosch was really the first big man that was able to switch out and guard on the perimeter. And now, if you're a big man and you can't guard on the perimeter, I mean, you're kind of like an ancient relic at this point. Chris Bosch and Kevin Love, I think, are my two favorite LeBron James adjacent players in his career. I love what happened with both of them and having to like adapt. Do, do Kevin Love and Harrison Barnes, do either of those guys have rings if Chris Bosch doesn't set that precedent? A wonderful thing to think about. I think you're absolutely correct that him having to fit into that hole created an archetype that a lot of people have fit into since then in in some championship winning ways. Uh, Though I would be remiss if in talking about the Heat Big Three era, I did not give a shout out to the 2014 Spurs for ending it. What a lovely memory. Speaking of memories. I I knew knew you were going to pivot to that. No, it's beautiful. It was was a great pivot. Uh, You you look like Tim Duncan pivoting over his outside shoulder to hit a 12-foot bank shot on that. I can and, see it in my uh, mind's eye. And, uh, you know, while, while, while Tim Duncan kind of gets remembered as aging super gracefully uh, into his late career, the person that's making memories for me is somebody that has their entire career still ahead of them. Um, I'm talking about the late goalkeeper substitution in the semifinal of the Australian Cup for Oakley Cannons. I'm talking about Emer Abili. Xavier, I know you're aware of Emer Abili. Uh, James, have you heard of Emer Abili? Not in the slightest, but I bet I'm about to learn a whole lot. So to give you some context, we're in the semifinals of the Australian Cup, the same way that in America we have the U.S. Open Cup. Over in England, they have the FA Cup. This is the tournament in which every team in Australia is eligible to play. 
And Oakley Cannons are a second-tier team. Uh, the A-League is the top tier in Australia. And uh, MacArthur was their opponents in the semifinal. Um, it's already somewhat of a miracle that Oakley made it to this point because their first seven goalkeeping options are all either injured or sick or in some other way. In the seven. On a, the first seven. Have you guys seen Spinal Tap? Because this is like the drummer's Spinal, Spinal Tap. Spinal drummer, Tap. Yes. <laughs> no, it's, it, that's a great analogy. And we don't quite go to 11 on this one. But we do go first to number eight, uh, which is Luis Italiano, which is a real name, as fake as that sounds. He was an emergency signing to be the starting goalie for Oakley Cannons. First in their quarterfinal matchup, which they won in thrilling fashion late. Um, but then also into the semifinals. So, Luis Italiano has no affiliation with the club. He just gets signed to come in and start. Uh, Imera Bili has been in the Oakley Cannon system for a couple years at this point. Uh, and right now, he's the starting goalkeeper for their U16 team. But he's not even 15. He is only 14 years old. In the semifinal, Oakley's playing MacArthur. MacArthur, as you would expect... They're up big late. They're up 5-2. So with four minutes added time in the first minute of that added time, the coach said, you know what, Ymir, get on in there. And it creates one of my favorite sports pictures of all time because this isn't like, okay, Ymir hit a growth spurt early and, you know, he's big and he, he looks the part of a goalie. He'll fill out in the one. Ymir's like 5'6", five, 5'7". Five, he's already undersized by any top-tier goalie standard. Just has the biggest, most wholesome smile on his face as he's being subbed in. And the coaches are all smiling as he's going in. Lewis is even like, it's like the, it's the opposite of the jealous girlfriend meme. He is looking back, but he's looking back and he's smiling. Because he's so happy to see Ymir get in the game. In the three minutes, Ymir does have to make one play on the ball. He gets it and makes a perfect pass. Gives up no goals in his three minutes of added time. It remains to be seen uh, what kind of senior league career Emer is going to end up having. I would guess that ideally he doesn't make another appearance for the senior team for probably about five more years. But in the moment when he was needed, he did dress. He dressed in the quarterfinal match as well. Comes on, no goals allowed in three minutes. And at 14 years old, Emer Billy making his debut for Oakley Cannons. And who knows, depending how long this podcast goes, he might make a return at some point as a retired guy. But for now, Ymir Bili, 14 years old. Good luck with your algebra homework. But for right now, <laughs> you're making memories for me. Use algebra to show how hard you have to jump to even be able to cover the entirety of the goal, you very small teenager. He has zero chance of controlling, of, of covering the whole net. Like, if you kick it to one of the corners, I'm just like, he's not gonna get it. <laughs> um, he's, he but, can't even put up a Mike McGee performance. That is, that is an Eddie Guidel-like... I mean, yeah, no, you, you did exactly what you needed to in that one opportunity. And, I mean, just what a cool story, because I, I must confess, I'm not super familiar with the way the schooling system works in Australia, but I'm imagining, you know, if it's similar to America, coming back from summer, hey, Mayor, freshman year of high school, what did you get up to this summer? Ah, I appeared in the semifinal of the Australia Cup. What about you? How was, how was your summer camp? No trapper keeper is cooler than having been in the Australia Cup as a goalie. Absolutely. And in the semifinal, he, they made it pretty deep, and he got to appear in a semifinal. So good for you, Mayor. And, and may we recount his guidance at a future date.
Xavier, how about you, my man? Who's making memories for you right now? So I've got a couple of quick ones, but first, because of our discussion on Chris Bosch, I was just checking basketball reference and they have a thing called the Hall of Fame probability index, which is kind of funny because a lot of these guys on here, including Chris Bosch, already inducted into the Hall of Fame, but it gives, still gives them the probability of getting in. So Chris Bosch was at 0.9951 out of one. So 99.5%. So yeah, this, okay, it is a decimal, not a percentage. Yes, it is a decimal. Only 28 players had a full 1.0000, and only three active players have that. Can you guess three, what those three active players, who those three active players are? Gotta be LeBron, yes. gotta be Steph. Chris Paul. Not yes. Steph. It's not Steph? Not Steph. Chris Paul over Steph. All right, I'm sorry. I guess he's got the longevity at this point, but what the fuck? Listen, before we get to the third, this is my main beef with the analytics. Sometimes they'll say, oh, look, we ran the numbers, and it turns out this crazy thing that you'd never expect. If your system says that Chris Paul has a more successful NBA career than Steph Curry, your system is fucking stupid, and you need to fix it. But I digress. Is it Durant? It's Kevin Durant. Okay. That's insane that Steph because, Curry is not so, listen, so listen to this. Listen to this. So, like I said, 28 players have the full 1.000. Isaiah Thomas is the last one they have listed. I don't know if there's any actual scoring here or if it just goes once you're at 100, it's just a random order. Tied at 29 are Steph Curry and James Harden with 0.99999. We like James Harden here. If James Harden is 0.9999, then Steph Curry has to be one. And you know who they're right ahead of? Giannis. Charles Barkley and Allen Iverson are both 0.9998. So that's what that's very interesting to me because Barkley and Iverson, in terms of NBA legends, are on complete opposite ends of the how much analytics slash efficiency models like them. And that's why it's so funny Barkley hates them because like analytics love him. makes the case for Barkley as an incredible player. And then Iverson obviously chucking 30 shots a night. Wasn't super efficient on those Sixers teams, but but he looked so cool doing it, Diaz. Listen, you know, I was crying coming home from second grade one day because my mom said I couldn't have cornrows like Iverson. So like, <laughs> I know how cool he looked. Don't get me wrong. Could have lived in my house. My brother and sister both got cornrows at one point, and I was the only sibling that did not have cornrows, and it was weird. Did not want them. Good. Uh, what I do want is to know who's making memories for you other than this absolutely absurd ranking system that should be disregarded because Steph Curry is a 100% Hall of Famer. What I just thought that would be fun for us, and I'm glad that, was that it was. Uh, yes. So a couple of things. One, fuck Robert Sarver. Mm -hmm. The league should kick him out. And if the league doesn't kick him out, money is going to kick him out with Squarespace, uh, I believe, uh, was it? PayPal. Was it PayPal refusing to, you know, be a sponsor again if he's back. The minority owners saying we need him out. Money will talk, and I believe he will be gone. I mean, he'll probably get paid fucking $3 billion to leave, so there's that, but hopefully he will be out. Two, man, I wish I was a good high school athlete because I just saw this thing about how the Texas Longhorns regularly spend a couple hundred thousand dollars a weekend on big prospects coming in. When they had Arch Manning come in, they spent $280,000 for... A full spread in their rooms at the Four Seasons Austin, a photo shoot at Daryl K. Royal Texas Memorial Stadium, a trip to the driving range Top Golf, 
multiple lavish meals, breakfast at the home of Coach Steve Sarkeesian, and a bunch of other things. Creepy to spend that much money on a teenager. Well, so overall, Texas has spent millions. Like yeah. the most the most recent that we have is that what was it 2019? Texas spent about 1.2 million on recruits, which was 13th that year. Georgia spent 3.7 million dollars on recruits. Even if you're just a good recruit, because that's the thing. There were other people other than Arch Manning on that trip. There were eight others. If you just happen to be good enough, you could be a three-star going on that trip, just happen to be with one of the top guys. Just imagine if you were a top high school athlete in one of these states that spends stupid money on sports. It'd be beautiful. Diaz, really, you were the one of us that we needed to, to reach this level so that we could live vicariously through your stories of the past. Listen, I'm not sure if it's documented anywhere online. I did go seven for nine passing my sophomore year on the Avon Grove JV team. Nominal completion percentage. Those statistics, if you project them out, I could have been one of the all-time greats. But, uh, you know, coaches, politics, we don't need to get into the whole story. I, I, I do lament that I didn't come up in the NIL era. Maybe I would have pushed myself a little harder. The last thing I wanted to talk about was just that, how are the Angels this bad? It's hysterical. Mike Trout is hitting 350 with seven homers and 12 RBIs in September, and they're still losing every game. They have, they have arguably, Otani and Trout. Yeah, and they have they arguably two win. of the five greatest baseball players in history. How, uh, inarguably how the possible? best. They weren't even playing the best teams. They were getting crushed by the Tigers. I don't understand how they keep losing with two of the best players in the world being great at the same time. And what gets me even more is like now, Pujols leaves after this abominable contract, frankly. Like, I'm glad that Pujols got paid, but largely it was a disaster with the Angels. And now he's good again. Pujols was there for nearly a decade, was arguably the worst full-time baseball player during that entire period of time, and now is like this fetid legend once again as he strolls into 700. Yeah, man, there's something about Anaheim. Honestly, that's what I, was, I think that's the curse. Just go back to being either the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim or the Anaheim Angels. You do not play in L.A., and it's not like other places where you've always played there, but it's because of you know not being able to get a stadium there. No, you were the Anaheim Angels for a while. Even the California Angels is better. You were that for the longest time. Be that. You are lying to yourselves to try to match the Dodgers, and it's never going to work, and you deserve what's coming to you. There are more Chargers fans in Los Angeles than there are Angels fans in Los Angeles. And the Chargers will always be San Diego. I appreciate the fact that Mike Wilbon and Tony Kornheiser on PTI refuse to call them the LA Chargers because that they do not get to be that. They will always be the San Diego Chargers. They deserve that for going to be the second team in LA. Well, the funniest thing about those L.A. football teams to me is they're going to continue to be extremely profitable, but that is because when the Eagles played out there, it's an 80% Eagles fan crowd. And I'm sure it's going to be a similar thing when, you know, when the Giants or the Jets go out there because there's so many transplants, right? The Chargers, but when they were in the fucking StubHub Center, the soccer one, there was maybe, what, 100 blue jerseys? And it's not easy to get out to Carson, California. 
It is not close. It is like pretty far in like a, a, a hike from downtown LA. And Transplants were still going there to support their team rather than the Chargers. You know what? They, they deserve what's coming to them just like the Angels deserve their misery of ruining the careers of two of the greatest players of all time. Never letting them see the playoffs or even smell a competitive game past May. They should at least be like... I love the Baltimore Orioles very much. We should not be above a team that has two of the five best players in baseball history. And not just above them. You're above them by like 14 games, something like that. That's what's making memories for me. A lot of random things and injustices and indignities in the world. James, what is making memories for you? It's tragic. You know what else is tragic is the the injury that Ravens mascot Poe suffered before this season. I'm just going to briefly mention that the Ravens, while they held tryouts with several mascots, including the mascot of the Portland Pickles, the Johns Hopkins Blue Jays, the Loyola Greyhounds, the Navy Rams, uh, the Baltimore Orioles, they brought in the bird. They couldn't use the bird because they were joking, oh, he'll be going into October. Come on, let's be realistic here. But anyway, they decided to go with Poe's brothers, Edgar and Allen, who they just haven't acknowledged the existence of for 14 years after having all three of them for a decade. Unfathomable to me that they just let them die and now are bringing them back with nothing. They signed them to one-year contracts. I'm also just caught up on the fact that, hey, we don't know how the human being that got injured while wearing the Raven costume is doing. We know that Poe the Raven had a drumstick injury, but we don't know how the human being is doing, which does bother me. I like the idea that Edgar and Alan were just locked in a shed somewhere, like refused to be let out. They're like, no, the public likes Poe. <laughs> Something to do with the NFL saying like you could only have one game day mascot. There was some rule where they didn't want to have multiple at the stadium mascots because they used to be the three of them wearing 101, 102, and 103. Edgar and Alan will be wearing 101 and 102 this year as their jersey numbers. But that's just some silliness. Let's get to a much more serious story that I have heard about recently. I'm going to take you guys to the world of chess. Oh, there, no. <laughs> there's this guy, Magnus Carlsen. There's this guy, Magnus Carlsen, who's a five-time world champion. He's incredibly good. And He's a massive, massive Sixers fan. Great friends with Daryl Morey. Yeah? And uh, so anything you're going to say, just know I'm taking Magnus' side. But I, that's You almost certainly will take Magnus' side. I mean, he's incredible. He also recently on a podcast, The Magnus Effect, that he appeared on with his friend, Magnus Barstad, they discussed that Magnus Carlsen, he's not going to do the world championship anymore. Doesn't find it challenging. He's creating new challenges for himself. He's still participating in chess. He actually had recently a kind of controversial match. Uh, he was playing a 19-year-old who is a grandmaster, Hans Niemann. So this was, it was reasonable that they were being matched up. And Carlsen absolutely made like a couple mistakes even like capitalized really well and after it people were saying like that was a it was a little suspicious how well Hans Niemann did against Magnus Carlsen to some folks Magnus Carlsen also he technically he wasn't defeated he tweeted that he was pulling out of the tournament and attached a little video of Jose Mourinho where Jose Mourinho says if I speak I am in big trouble alluding to hey maybe there's something up with my opponent well some folks have a theory and I'm going to make sure that we are saying that this is a theory and that is that Hans Niemann is cheating via vibrating anal bead. <laughs> I just was waiting for you to say it. The, the oh, idea no. is that someone is watching their games. They're putting the moves into a computer nearby and 
computers are very good at chess, in case you haven't had your ass kicked by a computer in chess recently. They're very good at kicking human ass. They're running the simulation and telling this person elsewhere what to do. Again, this is a theory. But in theory, what they're doing is once they do that, Holmes would, you know, kind of move his hand about the board. And whenever he landed on the piece that was actually the most reasonable to move, he would receive a signal via vibrating anal beads. Part of the reason that this theory is persisted is because, for one, Magnus Carlsen, like, is, is a pretty well-respected chess guy. So the fact that he threw any shade with that Jose Mourinho video is taken very seriously. This was all called out by a Twitch streamer, Hikaru Nakamura, otherwise known as GM Hikaru. The response to GM Hikaru by Hans Niemann, he said, if they want me to strip fully naked, I will do it. A lot of people took that specific line as saying, well, of course you'll strip naked to prove you're not cheating because you're cheating with vibrating anal beads. This is again a theory. It is just a theory that I wanted to make sure that I shared with the public and the two of you. Can we just refer to it as butt buzzing? Yes. Yes, we absolutely that- can. Hans Niemann accused butt buzzer. Not, not, it, it's, it's all alleged. It is not official, but allegedly Hans Niemann is an illegitimate chess champion because of butt buzzing. I read this story and I still was dying hearing you explain it again. I want it to be true so badly. (laughs) The one thing I'll also mention, the Reddit post that first brought this up before people started taking it seriously was saying maybe Magnus made that core response because he also had been cheating via, as we now refer to it, butt buzzing. But these are all theories. One way or the other, a lot of people believe that Magnus Carlsen was done dirty by this. And that brings us to exactly what we want to discuss at length today. We want to talk this week about guys that have been stabbed in the back, guys that have been left out to dry, guys that have been done dirty. I want to start with a guy who's had several instances of being done dirty before, during, and after his career. And I feel like it it sucks the most during the career. It sucks to be put down by maybe a teammate, maybe your full team, maybe the entire world while you are trying to accomplish your athletic goals. That's exactly what was going on with our guy today. It's the final stages of the Tour de France. And for the first time ever, as we check in on this guy, an American has the yellow jersey. The yellow jersey, of course, signifying that someone is in the lead of the Tour de France at that time. Again, his teammate does not want him to win. His team does not particularly want him to win. The continent of Europe, does not want this American to win. But that is not going to stop this guy, the only American to have ever won the Tour de France. Do either of you know who this is? First of all, we're we're saying Lance Armstrongs are like disqualified and don't count anymore. That is the trick question. Two individuals who are American-born have crossed the finish line first in Tour de France's, but one of them has had their wins vacated, which I promise we will get to. Uh, But this is his predecessor. Does it ring any bells when I say Greg LeMond? does well that's perfect because that's exactly who we're talking about greg lamond the only american to have ever won the tour de france as we said he's american born he's born in california he moved very quickly though to nevada somewhere called the washoe valley pretty near like reno and carson city wide open mountain land so this is an outdoorsy kid early on in his life he's out there with his family going hiking they're hunting they're skiing fly fishing this is someone who is a terrible student by his own admission. And so he has all of these as kind of his ways to occupy what he acknowledges now would probably have been diagnosed as ADHD. 
Eventually, in regards to his ADHD, as he puts it, his triumph over the symptoms was found atop two thin tires over many dusty miles. He finds biking, and he gets really into biking. He goes to this high school in Reno, Earl Wooster High School. He lives too far away to participate in their sports teams, but he could still get his exercise in by biking to school. It is roughly 20 miles the way he takes to get to school, which is the shortest possible route. On his way home, he goes by nearby Mount Rose through the skiing village there called Incline Village, and then goes on the south side of Highway 28 to Carson City, and then back home, by my estimation, I use Google Maps to work this out, 60 miles just to get home from school. So Greg LeMond, in order to just deal with ADHD, is busy becoming one of the greatest teenage bikers of all time. <laughs> well, I mean, that's kind of like what Xavier was talking about before we started recording, just like burn off all the energy so you don't have any time left for your ADHD. I wish yeah. I could channel mine into being a world-class athlete and not just a very lazy person with spurts of insane energy. Hey, you just need to get started. I mean, that's what happens for Greg Lamont. He's biking, and then 1975, he meets this guy named Wayne Wong, who is doing a lot of skiing at this time. Wayne Wong is one of the pioneers of American freestyle skiing, gets Greg LeMond, who he knows through skiing, into competitive cycling. Because he tells him, look, if you want to keep doing skiing, this is the off-season thing to do. This is what keeps the right muscle groups in your thighs strong. Very quickly, Greg LeMond's like, fuck skiing. I just want to bike all the time. And so he, at age 15 in 1976, he competes in the 13- to 15-year-old intermediate category. He wins his first... 11 races before they say, okay, we, you need to go up to the next age group. We can't have you beating up on all of these kids. So he's 15 and he's moved into the 16 to 19 year old category now where he still is whooping like everyone's ass. He competes in one of the bigger local road races, the Tour of Fresno. A tour is one that might have multiple stages versus like a single day classic. And he comes in second. Only person that beats him is a guy named John Howard who is the number one ranked road cyclist in the country at that point. And that is what gets him noticed by the coach of the U.S. Cycling Federation. I'm going to butcher this very, very Polish name. Eddie Borisovich. He calls him a diamond, a clear diamond. This kid has got raw potential out the ass. And so he gets brought onto the team, time to join the 1978 Junior World Championships. As a 16-year-old, places ninth. And then the next year at 17, wins a slew of medals, including first place in that road race that he placed in ninth a year ago. Now at 18, there's only one amateur thing left to do. What's the number one thing that any cyclist wants to do as an amateur? Oh, so it's golden gloves in boxing. Is it like the golden wheel? It's, you want to compete for gold somewhere. And yes, Xavier, you want to compete for, compete for gold at the Olympics. So he makes the U.S. 1980 Olympic team in cycling, really highly ranked, really high expectations, Whoops, the United States boycotts the 1980 Olympics. And so for the first time in our story here, Greg LeMond has been done quite dirty. Borisovich was actually like, hey man, let's keep your amateurship for another four years so we can get you in the next Olympics. Greg LeMond says, no, I'm sorry. I, I would like to make money over the next four years being one of the best cyclists in the world. He is still going to be an amateur for the rest of the summer. Going to a bunch of different showcases with his first ever French competition, the Cirque de la Soupe. And then he returns to the U.S. for the 1980 Nevada City Classic. It's right in his backyard. It is one of the most historic and challenging U.S. races. And he absolutely dominates it. He is minted as like the top 
amateur out there. And the day after the 1980 Tour de France, which is basically the start of like the cycling off season, he signs with the only team that he ever really considered, the biking juggernaut Renault, still one of the top cycling teams today. He is now a professional cyclist with Renault almost immediately, one of the most naturally talented riders on the 1981 Pro Circuit, a respected cycling journalist, John Wilcoxon. He's the first one to assign to him the label that gets thrown around for a lot of like really elite cyclists. There's a lot of different languages because a lot of Europeans really enjoy cycling, and I'm going to struggle with many of them. This one's an Italian term, fuori classe. It basically means you're more than a gifted cyclist. You are a cyclist who not only has like the physical elements you need, you've got a slow pulse, you've got large lungs, you've got the perfect proportions in your limbs, the lean muscle. You also just have the brain and the mindset to use that potential. This is a term that does not get thrown around lightly in cycling. So when he gets called this by John Wilcoxon, people are like, okay, let's, let's see what this kid does. Within three months, he's won his first race, again in France, the Tour de Loisse, and then he goes back to US, wins the Coors Classic. Uh, at the Coors Classic, he does beat the Soviet Sergei Sukorochenkov, who was the 1980 gold medalist when, admittedly, the USSR did not have the most robust competition at the 1980 Summer Olympics. Well, they also had, let's be real, we, we saw it for ourselves in Rocky IV, a pretty extensive doping program. There may just be some doping problems in cycling, Diaz. Let, let's see if we touch on any of those, perhaps. <laughs> So here's a really good 81 rookie year. He does actually get his first podium in a really big one later on when he's on the supporting team for the leader of the team at the time, Bernard Hinault. The idea with these teams is there is one primary biker. Everyone else, you know, sometimes the primary biker might not compete in every competition, but if he's there, the rest of the team is there in support of him. In support of him in this race, which means it's one of the like really big deal races because the main guy's still there, he is still able to finish initially fourth, until, oh look, Diaz, the original third place gets suspended for doping. He gets a 10-minute violation because that's actually, you don't get suspended. You just get 10 minutes added onto your time. I was, that guy still <laughs> finished like, in a decent spot. That's what I was going to say. It's interesting that they're like, all right, so you took, we found this much steroids in your piss, so we're going to add this many minutes. You probably got about 10 extra minutes shaved off. Uh, I kind of like that better. Do that in baseball. You, just, uh, you have to use a lighter bat, maybe, if you're, uh, if you're juicing. You have to hit it at least 50 feet further than the wall. Otherwise, it only counts as a single, even if it leaves the yard. Here's what we do. Here's what we do. There's clearly two different baseballs. You have to say whether you're juicing or not. It's just a simple check yes or no, and you get one of the two buckets of baseballs. <laughs> and if you're clean, you get to use the bouncy balls. And if you're juicing, you got to hit a dead ball. We could do it that way, or we could also reduce the barrel size for the donors. Mm, mm, so that's like, a good one. So, like, Barry Bonds has to go up there with a the broomstick and, like, good luck, dude. I mean, we just solved it. We solved it here in baseball. There's no doping problem that needs to get solved in cycling right now. Of course not. Uh, as we enter 1982, so this is his sophomore season. He does, unfortunately, have a pretty bad collarbone break early on, so he doesn't have a lot of professional races. Does make it back, though, for some U.S. national team play. There's another U.S. rider, Jacques Boyer. Now, he is, again, the primary guy on the team, sort of. The difference is with the U.S. versus a lot of the other countries, the U.S. doesn't have a race to determine who the leader is, which is how most of the other countries do it. Like, they'll run some time trial on their own turf, and the winner of that will be the primary guy. 
U.S. doesn't do that. Greg LeMond actually asks the U.S. Cycling Federation, hey, could we do that? And uh, they side with Jock Boyer, who conveniently enough will kind of be the captain if they don't do that. Huh. So later on, Greg LeMond just kind of says, fuck that. Late in the race, he's been holding this spot. He's supposed to be holding it so that Boyer can later on like drift off a minute in front. And he just starts going for it. He thought he had a beat at the end. Boyer was pretty far behind him. He had trailed a little bit and he was struggling to catch up. And so Greg LeMond just does it. And he gets a lot of flack for this. First off, he doesn't win. He comes in second. So there's a lot of like, yo, if you're going to do it, finish. Not able to quite catch up to first. But there are definitely some people that support him because U.S. just doesn't have this defined cycling culture. So there's a lot of individualism in a lot of U.S. sports. Who are we to criticize this guy that just wants to be the best in his country and in the world? At this point, the 21-year-old, he's saying, I'm racing for Renault, my team, and I'm racing for myself. He is not about trying to help out someone else on the national team just to be nice. I respect that. Because to me, like, loyalty is something that is supposed to be a two-way street, but usually it's only viewed in a one-way. It's like the subordinate is to be loyal to program or the person with less power should be loyal to the person with more power yeah and uh, i like that greg says fuck that yeah he's being done dirty once again by the national team and he does not want to allow that he starts to focus more on his professional team with renault now in 1984 when he's brought onto the tour de france for the first time this is kind of the beginning of his grand tour career now he's ramped up a little bit he is going to be in support initially for their team that time because look he understands that's his pay rate that's what happens when you have a job that signs your bills he does get the white jersey, which is given to the best young rider. They're a little flexible about what the definition of young is there, but he is seen as a very up-and-coming prospect. And then the next year, in 85, he's signed to a new team. It's a five-year, $1 million contract from Bernard Tapie. Yeah! Love Bernard Tapie, the terrible, corrupt businessman. He is incredibly corrupt, but he's but not least, He wasn't a Nazi who owned Adidas. He bought this Adidas is true. from the Nazis. <laughs> That should be Bernard Tapie's. Like, if Bernard Tapie were to run for office, his slogan should just be, not a Nazi. You know what? That's better than a lot of what we're getting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> so Bernard Tapie, he owns the team La Vie Claire at this point. He signs our boy Greg LeMond. And Greg LeMond is once again behind team leader Bernard Hinault, who has returned. He has followed him from Renault. He's come over here. We go to the next tour in 1985. Greg LeMond's doing really well early on, but he's supposed to be in support. He's making up a lot of ground, and the team is on the radio saying, hey, man, you got to hold up. Bernard's coming behind you. He needs to draft off you for a while. They had actually been lying to Greg LeMond about how far back he know was because they were afraid that LeMond would just go for it. He know ends up winning the Tour de France that year. It is his record fifth at the time tour. And, you know, Greg LeMond was willing to do it. He was willing to be the dutiful lieutenant this time. He finishes second in only his second tour. But the agreement is, okay, next year. Next year, though, Bernard. This sounds like Talladega Nights, the shake and bake. Little bit. Little bit. And, hey, some people get done dirty in Talladega Nights. Listen, Greg LeMond wakes up in the morning and he pisses excellence. His competition (laughs) wakes up in the morning and they piss several performance-enhancing drugs. Yeah, and... Want to make it clear, Greg LeMond, very clean, has always been on the record being incredibly clean, and he is clean in 1986 when it comes to his third tour now. Management reneges on their agreement, the handshake with Hinault. 
the idea is now the the ninth stage is one of the time trials that they have and whoever wins the time trial between the two of them and that the team is going to honor as the winner Kino has a very good time in it not like record-breaking time it is a good one unfortunately it is a narrow win because Lamont suffers from both a flat and then later a broken wheel so twice has to have his bike replaced and despite that still finishes seconds behind him but because the team and Hanol have gone back on their word now he is supposed to finish behind Greg Lamont does not really care about that so he just starts ignoring it and leaving the team Hanol all the time will start making like unannounced attacks to try and lead the team and tire out Greg Lamont a little bit. So he's trying to like wear him down his own teammate so that he can't finish ahead of him. Greg Lamont is also like every single night being told, Hey, don't let your bike or water bottle out of your sight. Because again, oh as we God. mentioned in the intro, no European wants an American to win the tour de France. It has never happened before at this point. They will absolutely try and poison him. Be careful, Greg, despite the team turning their back on him, despite the betrayal from his teammate, Despite all of Europe trying to get him, Greg Lamont takes it in stage 17, the yellow jersey. First ever American to even wear the yellow jersey at that time and wears it for the rest of the race. He has won. Incredible. Take that, Europe. Yeah. But Europe is going to have the last laugh for a little bit because Greg Lamont, he does get done dirty again. It's a little bit of an accident this time. He goes hunting with his uncle and his brother-in-law. They get separated. And then the brother-in-law hears a noise. And the brother-in-law pulls a Dick Cheney Oh, no. Shoots Greg Lamont with a shotgun oh, no. at pretty short range. <laughs> Lamont is blasted. He's absolutely destroyed. They have to airlift him out of the woods. He loses 65% of his blood volume. They said he was about 20 minutes from dying, roughly. Yeah, that's nuts. Four months later, he has a bowel obstruction due to like some internal scar tissue. So he has to get a surgery again. He also has them take out his appendix so that to his team, he can say... Yeah, I had a second surgery to get my appendix taken out. Don't pay attention to any of the other things that happened in that second surgery regarding this off-season injury that I had. This was just an appendix. With all of this, he obviously misses the entire 1987 season, pretty much. During that time, falls out with Renault and Levy Claire, both the teams that he's run with, so he is without a team now. He signs on with a Dutch team in 88, except, wouldn't you know it, they're doping. Can you believe that? Can you believe that there were bikers in Europe taking drugs? The gall. The fucking gall. They should have just let all those records stand and just be like, no, you clean guys, you take drugs too. That's the easiest way for everyone to be on the same playing field than getting rid of all of the drug users. Instead of putting an asterisk to the dopers, you just bold the names of the people that won without doping. Holy shit, and this guy didn't even use anything. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Greg Lamont, who... Still has 35 pellets in his body. They got most of them out, but there are three in his heart, five in his liver. He comes back with his Philips DuPont team, a team sponsored by Philips Electronics and DuPont Chemicals. They know their chemicals. All of their (laughs) team is taking testosterone, so he only lasts the one season with that team before he quit. Problem is he hasn't found a new team, and then it's New Year's Eve, and it's about to be the new contractual year. So on New Year's Eve, signs with a new team, this like scrub Belgian, no-name guys, ADR, All of his teammates are guys who do like the single day classics. No one has ever really raced a tour or raced competitively in a tour. This is just the team that will take him. And so he decides, you know what? I'm going to take these guys to the 89 Tour de France. I'm going to do my best. And then I'm going to retire. Tells his wife this. It's pretty good pole position to start the tour. And 
it becomes one of the most competitive Tour de France of all time. There's Laurent Fignon, Frenchman, who he had been actually a part of the same team with him in 1984, comes with him until the very final lap. Normally, the final lap of the Tour de France is more or less a victory lap. It is just like into the cobblestones of Versailles. This one year, they decide to switch it up slightly. They're going to make it a time trial, but it's not a very long time trial. It's going to still go the same route into Paris. It's only 15.2 miles. That's pretty short. And Le Mans needs to gain 50 seconds. Every single kilometer, he needs to be gaining a full two seconds on him. Le Mans's a big tinkerer. He was a guy who's very early into like carbon fiber. He's very into solid state wheels. That's the ones that have no spokes. It is just a single flat plane. He gets his bike outfitted with a solid state wheel. He gets one of those really dorky looking helmets. I'm talking like a foot of fin behind it. And then he gets <laughs> the handlebars that are even more intense than like the drop bars I use where you're crouching down with them like in front of you. It's all this setup. He takes his mic out of his ear. He says, guys, I don't want to know the splits. I am just going to race full speed for that time and see if I can make this up. He goes and he crosses the line eight seconds ahead of Laurent Fignon. He gains almost an entire minute in 15.2 miles. He is averaging over 30 miles an hour that entire time. As someone who pretends to be good at cycling, and I say pretend because we're talking about world-class athletes there, that's insane. What? How hard do you have to go on, let's say, level of ground? For you to get up to 30 miles an hour and how long would you be able can't. to stay? On level ground, I can't. On level ground, I can max out on my bike at about 26 miles per hour. Going down a slope, if I go full speed with pedal, I could maybe get up to 31, 32. He was racing at like the terminal velocities that I can race at. And after he does that, I know he said to his wife that he was going to retire. I'll, I'll pose this to you, Diaz. What do you think Greg LeMond had going through his mind after that 1989 Tour de France? I'm going to say, uh, you know, I don't know French, but I know Merde. I'm going to say he had some more Merde to prove. He had some Merde to prove. Absolutely he did. Uh, he goes to the 1989 World Championships that same year. Again, it's Laurent Fignon on the front. And then a guy named Sean Kelly from Ireland. They're all very, very close. LeMond does not feel particularly well but then he is despite being sick amongst the leaders and then with two laps to go he kind of looks around he's like you know what i got a little burst of extra energy and he just goes ahead and fucking wins the whole thing it's the fifth ever time that someone won the tour and the world championship in the same year it's obviously the first ever time an american had done it because it's the first time an american won the tour sorry second time an american won the tour but he's the only one to have done it uh he also becomes the first ever cyclist to be the sports illustrated sportsman of the year all of this means he gets to sign the biggest contract that any cyclist has ever signed. Five and a half millions for three years with the team Z Tommaso out of France. And now he's going to go to the 1990 Tour de France. Now the world champion gets to compete with a special world champion jersey while you're riding in the Tour de France. They have a lot of jerseys in the Tour de France that are special. I feel special. like that'd be the most badass thing ever. <laughs> be like, yeah, just, just you know that I'm the best just by looking at the shirt I'm wearing. He competes with it on. And he very quickly gets into a three-way competition. It is just Le Mans and two new guys this time in Italian, Claudio Ciappucci and Miguel Indurain. On the second to last day going into this, Greg Le Mans is able to grab the yellow jersey. He does get a victory lap on his last day. He does not have any upstart people in behind him. The third tour win for our boy Greg Le Mans. He is the fifth ever three-time champ. There's seven now. 
and he competes in three more over the next four years, but this is the climax of his career because he never really is able to be all that competitive in them. He finds that God, he just like cannot keep up with the racers these days. It, he worries that there's something medically wrong with him. He develops all of these new training programs. Again, he's a big tinker. So he gets this tech that starts to measure his cycling output in Watts. This is like one of the first times that people are ever using this as training data. But he just can't manage to keep up with all the other riders. So finally in 1994, he does retire. Uh, at the same time, the Americans have a new cycling ingenue who's come along, Mr. Armstrong. Looks like Greg LeMond can kind of fade into the background. There's a new U.S. star. He starts LeMond's cycles with Trek. Uh, he continues to like do a lot of anti-doping advocation for the sport in general. And in 2001, this starts to lead to the final time that Greg LeMond's going to be done dirty and done by far the dirtiest. In 2001, he comments on how disappointed he is to learn that Armstrong worked with a guy named Dr. Michelle Ferrari, who is an admitted practitioner of blood doping. <laughs> Here's a question I have for the two of you. You mentioned steroids earlier, Diaz. What is it you think you are trying to accomplish with performance-enhancing drugs in cycling? I would assume in cycling, it doesn't have to do with muscle growth as much as it has to do with increasing endurance. Indeed. Yeah, it is, it is absolutely about endurance. Do you have an idea as to what the mechanism for that is? It would be something to help you to further oxygenate your blood. So when you're saying blood doping, I'm assuming that this guy's got an O2 tank going into your fucking bloodstream and just doing it like that. I mean, it, at its most basic level, what it means is we're finding like really healthy guys with blood and we're taking some of theirs out and then we're giving you blood transfusions of guys with super high red blood cell counts. Like that's early blood doping. It's not even an oxygen tank. It's much more barbaric than that. But all of it is based around exactly what you're saying. Basically the ability to reoxygenate your blood. There is a measurement called VO2 max, basically your aerobic capacity, how quickly you can oxygenate your blood. For what it's worth, the unit is kilograms per minute, but I'll just use the numbers here. An average human being, somewhere in the 30 to 40 range. An athlete, you're looking about 70 to 80, like an average athlete. Uh, Greg LeMond is 97. That's part of that Flori Classy idea. You just are genetically gifted sometimes in becoming a good athlete. He is at a conference around this time where he's hearing the doctors, including Dr. Michelle Ferrari, talk about Lance Armstrong's VO2 max and his inspiring comeback from cancer treatment and all of that. And they say that Armstrong's VO2 max is in the 70s. Now, they didn't overlap a lot, but they overlapped a little bit, Lamont and Armstrong. Lamont knows there's no fucking way Armstrong was beating me that badly if that's his VO2 max. Like, that's just not possible. He comes out in 2004 with the line that really stirs the pot. If Armstrong's clean, it's the greatest comeback. If he's not, then it's the greatest fraud. Lance Armstrong is pissed off. Oh my goodness. Lance Armstrong starts calling Greg Lamont and saying, hey, I'm going to go ahead and threaten your family here if you don't start retracting that. I can get anyone that I need to testify that you are the one doping, not me. I can make all of your life hell. And he starts to do exactly that. Greg LeMond's cycle sales managed by Trek Bicycles suddenly go into the toilet. Trek Bicycle is a uh, sponsor for the U.S. Cycling Federation. He is lambasted by everybody because he's seen as picking a fight with a cancer survivor who by this <laughs> point has won more Tour de France's than anyone else. So people despise Greg Lamont. He is thrown under the fucking bus, but he just keeps trying to put out the idea that there's, there's this drug, which is a long scientific name that is shortened to EPO, basically increase your VO2 max. He keeps saying, look, 
I think that the U.S. Cycling Federation has a systemic abuse of this drug, and that is their doping program right now, and the world is just disdainful. Lance Armstrong is seen as a saint until finally, in 2010, six years has been going on. Floyd Landis, a member of the U.S. Cycling Federation team when they were the Postal Service team, he finally blows the whole thing up with his testimony, basically supporting everything Lamont says. To Landis's credit, it disqualifies him from several things. He acknowledges that he was a part of all of this, but that ends up getting every single title basically from Lance Armstrong vacated. Lance Armstrong officially has never won a Tour de France. It's some level of vindication. And Greg LeMond nowadays, again, is seen as a cycling hero. I will say, I, was, I think Greg LeMond is, is incredible. But I mean, it was a rough time there for a while. He was exiled for years. And the cycling world has tried to make amends. But we can do our part here to make amends by honoring my guy, Greg LeMond. I love, love that whole story. Definitely done dirty at a few different points of the story. And I just love the, the theme this week being guys that were done dirty. And it's ultimately guys that went dirty, that did him dirty. Guys that chose to dope. And listen, I have a very liberal stance on doping personally. I think if done responsibly and done intelligently, it can help athletes reach that next level of performance. But I also think that when you're an athlete, you sign up to abide by rules. And Greg LeMond, obviously, very much a person that adheres to the rules passed down by those that didn't follow the rules. Uh, and yeah, to your point, is there some level of vindication now? Yes. But if I go out on the street and I ask 100 people, hey, name a cyclist. I bet you a lot of them are going to say Lance Armstrong and a lot of them are going to say, hey, he's the greatest of all time and he won all the Tour de France. And they probably don't even know about all this doping shit. And not one person is probably going to name Greg Lamont, but... be shocked if one person names another cyclist, frankly. Yeah, besides Lance, exactly. So, a shame that he was done so dirty, but I, I appreciate the opportunity to learn more of the backstory. He's not just a name that I've heard now. Yeah. One last thing I'll say on his anti-doping stance. While some of it is like the integrity of the sport, probably after boxing and soccer, the next most corrupt sport in international scene. But a lot of what his whole point was, was... With the need in teams that use doping to try and always be on the cutting edge, you're putting the athletes in a lot of positions to be guinea pigs for relatively unethical scientists and doctors. And that was really his biggest concern. He did not want other cyclists being put in that dangerous position because of their own misguided, but also understandable position. Look, if everyone's doing it, if Greg LeMond can't keep up with the pack anymore because everyone in the pack is doping, you can understand why other people were doing it. And he just wants to look out for the other cyclists. So let's look out for him and get him in this hall. He's a humanitarian. And also we could spite Lance Armstrong, which is always fun. That is who was done dirty for me. But I, I would love to hear some more stories of hopefully people <laughs> that were done dirty and then get their vindication like I did. Hopefully there's some vindication in these other two <laughs> stories today. Well, for my guy, the vindication is still very much pending. It's going to depend very much on the way the next five to ten years go for the team that he used to be affiliated with. My guy never took the court, the field, the pitch, the, the cycling track, any of these in any kind of professional capacity. He is a high school legend in Oklahoma, both on the football field and on the basketball court. One of the most Intelligent players is how coaches would always remember him. He always just seemed to be a step ahead. And he was several steps ahead when he took control of the Philadelphia 76ers. I'm talking about the architect of the process, 
person that was royally fucked by Adam Silver and the entire Colangelo family. I am talking about Samuel William Wallace Inky. Xavier's acting surprised right now. Like this wasn't the obvious thing you're going to do. Mm. Diaz said basketball. I'm like, oh yeah, cool. Diaz is finally doing the Sam Hinkie episode. It's the episode that we've been waiting nearly a year for. Well, I'm surprised just because Sam Hinkie in the city of Philadelphia slash state of Pennsylvania doesn't feel like a guy because he was worshipped religiously by many people, including one this, Justin Diaz. What is this was? Okay, I, I was trying to give Diaz the benefit of the doubt, but... Yes, Sam Hickey is still a god for many people, which seems to not go well with the idea of a guy, but I'm willing to withhold judgment until I hear the whole story. Well, before I get into the full pitch, let me just submit my ultimate guy test, the bar test. Can you say a one-sentence thing at a bar in any town in America, and people will know who you're talking about? In any town in the USA, you can say, hey, do you remember that guy that like ran the Sixers and tried to lose for like five years? He would be like, oh yeah, what was that guy? And then the name Sam Hinkie will come up. So, yes, I think it can be tough for us to conceptualize the guy case for Hinkie within this Philadelphia bubble. But I do think as we get into it, we're going to see that uh, Samuel William Wallace Hinkie is actually quite the guy. So first off, you know, I always like to start with where they were born and the date of their birth. Uh, Samuel William Wallace Hinkie was born in the Netherlands in December of 1977. I don't have a day. That's because nobody has a day. Sam Hinkie, man of mystery, famously tight-lipped with the media, does not have his birthday available anywhere online. I searched high and wide. I cannot find it anywhere. So we're just going to have to settle for December like, I like the idea that they don't he know what know. his birthday Yeah, I thought yeah, you were going to say his birthday. He doesn't know his birthday. Presumably, he might know what his birthday is. But he might not. I don't know what kind of records they were keeping over in Holland in 1977. So... It very well could be that Sam Hinkie's birthday will just remain a mystery for, for till the end of time. But I think that's just a good place to start for a person that was famously tight-lipped with everybody, keeping information close to his chest. At the age of three, family moves to Eastleigh, South Carolina. And when I say family, that is two brothers, Father Ron and Mother Sarita. Father Ron works for Halliburton, and Sarita is just a stay-at-home mom. At the age of 10, they moved to Marlowe, Oklahoma, which is where Ron grew up. But Ron actually is staying in the Netherlands this whole time. Work is calling for him there. So it's just Sarita and the boys there in Marlowe, Oklahoma. And as Sam grows up, obviously, takes a very strong liking to sports. In high school, he is a two-time starting defensive back for the football team. And would also go on to be the point guard his senior year, starting point guard for Marlowe High School. Now, Sam was diminutive, to put it nicely. Only grew to be 5'9", and in high school, uh, he weighed about 145 pounds soaking wet. So, not the biggest player, but an incredibly cerebral player. Bill Carter was an assistant coach on the football teams at Marlowe High. And he said that by Tuesday of game week, he would chart the entire season's worth for their opponent of their tendencies, you know, in which situations, what kind of plays they go with. And Sam said, by Friday, I would always have it memorized. This comes up in particular in one game against their rivals at Tuttle High School. To, to recount the story, it goes the second and short. And as Sam tells it, Tuttle often got greedy and passed the ball, often to their tight end on a flag route. I could see Coach Carter's meticulous handwriting that showed the flag to the tight end, 
So I took two steps to the sideline and broke on the ball before he threw it. I never felt so lucky to be coached by such hardworking, detail-oriented men. And this isn't something that he wrote. This is like Sam just like speaking like you and I are right now. He uses very specific but also articulate language just off the cuff. This was a story that he told to Sixers Beat reporters. Very famously, Hinky would almost never go on the record about his intentions for the team or what he was thinking. But hey, you want to ask me about my high school football 30 years ago? I got some stories to tell you. So that's the big story for his football team. But obviously, we know Sam Hinkie most for his involvement in the game of basketball. As I mentioned, uh, junior year, the team went to states before they were eliminated. He steps up as the starting point guard for his senior year. And Sam just knew he had to get any kind of advantage anywhere he could. So not only spending so much time in the locker room, but he was also very much a gym rat. To the extent that despite being 5'9", 145 pounds... By his senior year, I just want, I want you both to guess, what was his single rep max squat? I have no idea what the normal is for that. 210. 500 pounds. What the fuck? High school senior Sam Hinkie is out here squatting three times his body weight. Like it's nothing. And I just want to bring this up because the common narrative, and this is one way in which Sam Hinkie was done dirty. The media narrative around him the whole time he was using Philadelphia was... He's just this nerd with his calculators and his formulas, and he doesn't know anything about sports. Meanwhile, Sam Hinkie could crush all of those reporters that said that bullshit with his thighs. He could just like pop their heads, and it would be like fucking nothing to him. Flanders is uh, super ripped. Just absolutely ripped. Stupid, sexy Sam Hinkie. Anyway, before we delve too far into fanfic, not just with his high school team, but also Sam Hinkie put a lot of value on pickup basketball. And, you know, this is something that Barack Obama has talked about as well. And I personally, as somebody that plays pickup basketball at least twice a week, if not three, four, five times, if you put me on a pickup basketball court with somebody for an hour, I can tell you just about everything about them as a person just from playing that basketball. Sam feels kind of the same way. His quote regarding playing pickup basketball, it's sort of a window to the soul. How will you respond to adversity? Will you back cut, run hard, cheat? Box out, share the ball, get on the floor, stand up for yourself, stand up for your teammate. I was usually pretty sure who I wanted to be my friends after a few games of make it take it. So many of my friends were teammates somewhere. And I just I just love that. Couldn't agree more. I think if you put me on a basketball court with somebody, I'm going to know what kind of person they are by the time the hour is up. What's the really corny cliche quote? It doesn't build character, it reveals character. Yeah, it doesn't build character, it reveals it. And, it's, you know, hey, cliches are a cliche for a reason. Cliches are a cliche because everybody agrees that they are good for some purpose when it really comes down to it. Obviously, everything we know about Sam, not just an athlete, he's also very, very book smart. Graduates as valedictorian from Marlowe in 1996. From there, he decides to stay somewhat local goes off to Norman and attends Oklahoma University, where he's already very distinguished before he even gets his bachelor degree. He was president of the Student Business Association, and he was also chairman of the Dean's Roundtable. So all the deans for the different schools of the university, they have a roundtable, Sam's the chairman. Rubbing elbows, all that good stuff. Also, while there, he is named one of the top 60 undergraduates in the country by USA Today. I don't know if they still do this. I don't know when they started doing it. Just, I don't just, know what metrics. Just like anyone that's an undergraduate. He is a top 60 undergraduate in the country. 
I would love to have claimed that when I was an undergrad. I'm a top 60 undergrad. Says who? Me. Do you have to apply? I have so many questions about this. Listen, unfortunately, I didn't dive too deep on the whole electoral process for this. Maybe it's something we can get into on a future episode. It is something um, we will get into on a future episode. But if that's the case, then then by all means. Let's... We'll circle back to that. One other big happening for Sam at Oklahoma University is he also meets his future wife there. Uh, he meets Allison Burness. He uh, would propose to her at the Arc de Triomphe in Paris. Straight out of, Ooh. listen, Tour de France. Pokemon whizzes by. Exactly. Greg LeMond very well may have been racing past the Arc de Triomphe at, at the same moment. The guy circles may have crossed. Straight out of college, Sam's not going to dive into the sports world quite yet. He accepts a job with Bain & Company out of college and then ends up moving to Australia for a few years after he joins Bain Capital. While he's doing all this, he's also enrolled in graduate school at Stanford, earning his MBA. He's also serving as an advisor for a couple teams in the NFL, the San Francisco 49ers and the Houston Texans on just different draft strategies and statistical models that they could use to evaluate prospects. And while he's also doing this, not just as an advisor, he is working part-time for the Houston Rockets, which will serve as our jumping off point. Upon graduating from Stanford in 2005, he is immediately hired full-time by the Houston Rockets. He's named a special assistant GM to Carol Dawson. Carol, to be clear, two R's, two L's, one Y chromosome. The Rockets <laughs> were not a progressive organization that you may think that they are because of that. I just wanted to be clear. I didn't want people to think that we just lost over Houston having the first female GM. It was a dude. Two years after Hinky joins the Houston Rockets, Carol Dawson leaves and a man by the name of Daryl Morey is hired as the GM for the Rockets. One of his first acts is naming Hinky as his vice president, which made Sam the youngest VP in the NBA at that time. Hinky in Houston serves as the second in command for a good six years alongside Maury. And one of the most impressive rebuilds in NBA history. While the Houston Rockets in this iteration never won a championship, you look at when Hinky stepped in here, we're talking about the trail end of the Mickey Yao years. Tracy McGrady and Yao Ming incredibly never made it out of the first round together. Again, two players which were very ill-fated by injury. Tracy McGrady at his peak, many people would tell you, was just as good, if not better, than Kobe was. Yao Ming. Everybody just thinks Yao was just this giant dude, and that's why he was good at basketball. I implore you, watch Yao Ming highlights. The things that he was doing on a basketball court don't make sense for any center, let alone one that was 7'5". I've seen him go behind the back on a fast break by himself and finish it with a dunk. I've seen him hit 20-foot fadeaway jump shots. Yao Ming was awesome. And anybody that just thinks he was a big guy, go look him up. Anyway, the reason I bring that up is it's so impressive to me that the Maury Hinky front office went from that through several different iterations of trades to finally land James Harden and never really bottom out at any point in that, always remain somewhat competitive, and then go from one top five team in the league to another top five team in the league. But as I mentioned, you know, Sam's just number two in command here. And in 2012, he gets a chance to become the head man when he interviews for the GM position with the Philadelphia 76ers. The Sixers did not hire Hanky. At this point, instead, they went for the internal hire, Tony DeLeo, father of TJ DeLeo, a great backup point guard for the Temple Owls in the time that we were going there. 
Just like Sam Hinkie, TJ DeLeo was a cerebral point guard. The Sixers were not very cerebral in their high end of Tony DeLeo because uh, the first big move that Tony makes, which to me really was the start of the process. We'll get to Sam Hinkie's first move eventually, but Tony DeLeo trades Andre Godala in that four-team trade that sent Dwight Howard to the Lakers, bringing back Andrew Bynum to the Sixers. And this has to go down as the worst return for an all-star in a trade of all time because Andrew Bynum played zero games for the Sixers. Did one more year on his contract, the whole time saying, hey, I'm going to sign long-term. Hey, feeling like I'm about two weeks away from coming back. That season was probably the worst season of watching the Sixers in my life. He did like the ball, though. Yes, to Xavier's point. Andrew Bynum was very close to coming back until he re-aggravated his knee injury. Fucking bowling. I guess because, like, maybe that's just one of the sports they didn't think to list in the contract as one you can't do. Right, but I mean, like, when you then think of it, you're putting all your weight on your one leg right before you throw it. You do that, figure 10 frames in a game, you're throwing at least two balls each, three-game series. A solid 60 to 70 times, he's just putting all his weight on that one knee. So not great. That trade fails horrifically. Tony DeLeo is dismissed after one year at the helm of the Sixers. He was also the coach prior to that. So the Sixers were just very much a, um, how do we say this, nepotistic franchise. And we'll come back to that. But in the immediate aftermath of the firing of Tony DeLeo, the Sixers and owner Josh Harris decide to call up Sam Hinkie again, let him interview for the job. And this time Hinkie gets it. Why right. do you need a second interview? You're admitting already that you made a mistake in hiring the <laughs> other guy. Well, so they interviewed him in 2012. Yeah. The season goes by. And then they interview him in 2013. You sh- he should not have to deign to give another interview at that point. If you're crawling back to me a year after passing me up for the other guy that fucked up, I'll take the job. You're going to make the interview again? Listen, all of us probably have big enough egos that we would have taken that approach. Sam Hinkie is not a man of ego. Sam Hinkie is a man in search of the simple truth, which is how are we going to build the best basketball team possible? Very quickly, looking around at the Sixers, this was a Sixers team that two years prior, they were the eight seed. They upset the Chicago Bulls because Derrick Rose's knee exploded and Joakim Noah broke his ankle. But then they took the Celtics to seven games. So people were thinking, ah, maybe the Sixers have a little something here. Obviously, in the Andrew Bynum year, they don't make the playoffs. It's not looking too great. Sam Hinkie very quickly looks around and he looks at this roster that has Drew Holiday and Evan Turner and Thaddeus Young and Spencer Hawes as his cornerstones and very accurately summarizes, 8C is probably about the upper echelon of outcomes for this group. So on draft night, trades away Drew Holiday, sends him to the New Orleans Pelicans in return for the rights to New Orleans Noel, who was the number one prospect in that draft, but fell to six because of an ACL tear. And a 2014 top five protected pick. Uh, it would convey the next year. And uh, we'll get to who they <laughs> ended up picking with that pick. But also with the picks that he did have, he selects Michael Carter-Williams, point guard coming out of Syracuse, and Arsalan Kazemi, who was a rebounding wonderkind for Oregon. Never so in, his, his, name in Ar- his first draft, he's already selected not a Hall of Guy inductee, but a minted guy in Michael Carter-Williams. He, he did take a Hall of Guy nominee, Michael Carter-Williams. Maybe he had the foresight to know that one day we would be on this very podcast and this would help to add to his credentials. Who knows which future possibilities he calculated for. Arsalan Kazemi, by the way, watching him in summer league that first year, his stats in like 20 minutes would be like two points and like 19 rebounds. It was 
you know, Sam's kind of looking for those guys that who has one skill that is elite. Kazemi was an elite rebounder. It didn't work out. But you take as many bites at the apple as possible. You take as many shots as possible. And some of them are going to work. In August, finally hires a head coach. Uh, this was a big thing all summer. People were like, what is Hinky doing if he's not hiring a head coach? Anybody who was paying attention knew who the coach was going to be. It was just a matter of ironing out the details. And he hires the development coach from the San Antonio Spurs, Brett Brown. And, you know, Brett, his biggest role to the Spurs was helping to develop the youth on that team. You know, guys like Tony Parker and Manu Ginobili and Patty Mills come to the Spurs with not much accolades. But Brett, with his ability to be empathetic as a coach and to communicate as a coach, is able to help to get the most out of these players. Basically, this is setting the scene for what kind of the MO is going to be in Philadelphia. And this is forming the start of the process. Just real quick before I get more into, you know, Sam's first year and all that. I want to set the record straight on what the process is and what it is not. First of all, people always would put things forward like, oh, Sam thinks he's so much smarter than everybody. No, the exact opposite. Sam thinks we are all stupid. He submits that we are all morons and that we all look at all these different things to try to figure out who the best prospects are. And ultimately, the margins that you can gain by that are not very large. The biggest margins to gain is in having more chances. That was the whole logic of trading away players for more picks. If you give me two picks, I might not nail either of them. But if you give me 10 picks, I might nail one. And that's kind of the first part of the MO. The second misnomer that people have about the process is that the Sixers were intentionally trying to lose games. Absolutely fucking not. Was the roster constructed in a way so as to give playing time to young players to allow them to develop quicker? Did the Sixers not waste money in signing veterans that were in no way conducive to their goals of building the championship contender? Yes. Is a consequence of that losing? Yes. It's not like Sam Hickey is going into the clubhouse before each game and doing the Rachel Phelps from Major League thing where she wants the team to lose. In fact, you talk to any player that was on those Hinky Sixers, and especially you talk to Joel Embiid. Joel says when he was going through all of his arduous process to actually get onto the court, Sam was his number one advocate. He thought about retiring at one point, and Sam was the person to get in his ear, you know, help him go through it. Also, Sam talks about he lost like 30 pounds while being the GM of the Sixers because of the stress of so much losing. He was not sitting there fat and happy watching the losses. Very much the exact opposite. Two things that I wanted to set straight. Sam didn't think he was smarter than anybody. And Sam did not want the team to lose. He had other goals besides winning games on the court. But he did not want to lose. I want to be very clear about that. And to start his first season as Sixers GM, the Sixers actually don't lose at all to start off. Opening night against the Miami Heat. They go on a 20-2 run to open the game. The Sixers go on to win this game behind very nearly a quadruple double from Michael Carter-Williams in his first game. Next game, they go down to Washington. They're playing against the John Wall, Brad Beal Wizards. They go down there and they win. Then the Chicago Bulls come into the Wells Fargo Center. The Sixers win that game. They open up 3-0. People are talking about maybe this team is a lot better than we thought. Maybe the Sixers should make one or two moves to try to be a contender. Sam's not going to let a three-game sample size dissuade him from his long-term goals. And things do ultimately come back around. At one point this season, the Sixers lose 26 consecutive games. 
which tied the NBA record. Another thing, Sixers did tie the record for the longest losing streak. They tied the record for most losses at the start of season in Sam Hinkie's era. They tied the record for worst record for a whole season. They never once set one of those records for themselves. So, did they approach steps never seen before in NBA history? Yes. But they never once crossed that plateau. None of that ever happened. Anyway, we're not here to talk about what happened on the court. We're here to talk about the moves that were made by Sam and all the orchestration that he was able to put together. At the 2014 deadline, the Sixers send off a lot of those veterans I mentioned. They send off Evan Turner, Spencer Hawes, Temple Owl legend LaVoy Allen is also shipped out at this time. And they get just a bunch of second rounders back. And also Henry Sims, a good backup center. Centers become a bit of a thing with Sam. We'll get to it. That should be his nickname. And also Henry Sims. Well, so what's funny is um, Rights to Ricky Sanchez is the podcast I listen to religiously. They organize the lottery parties for the Sixers. Their sign-off is, are you down with TTP? Yeah, you know Lickface. Henry Sims is Lickface because uh, Mike Levin once said, he just always looks like he's trying to lick his own face out there. Which, look up a picture of Henry Sims. Right now, in your mind, you're like, what the fuck does that even mean? And you're going to see a picture of Henry Sims, you'd be like, yo, that dude tries to lick his own face. <laughs> It's such a specific description. Oddly specific and hauntingly accurate uh, if you look up Henry Sims. But regardless, this first season, a lot of people, they're they're feeling a little uneasy about what the Sixers did. They don't finish with the worst record in the league. And in fact, uh, Michael Carter-Williams is named Rookie of the Year ahead of, notably, at this point, Giannis Antetokounmpo. So we'll always have that one on Giannis. But right after the season ends... They finally send off the last of the veterans. Thaddeus Young is sent to the Timberwolves uh, in exchange for a top 10 protected 2015 pick from the Heat. Luke Richard and Bob Mute and Alexi Shved. Yeah, Alexi Shved. Dare I say would be a guy in, in a different context. Maybe we'll get to it at some point, but we're going to stay with Sam right now. So now we're entering the 2014 draft. And this was the winless for Wiggins campaign. Everybody was pining to get Andrew Wiggins at number one, but... As the pre-draft circuit ramped up, it became very clear. The number one prospect in this draft is Joel Embiid. Bar none. I will remember forever reading a Simmons article about it, where he just said in his Simmons way, like, by the way, Joel Embiid is by far the best prospect in this NBA draft. Other GMs might try to lead you think that maybe Jabari Parker or maybe Andrew Wiggins. It's Joel Embiid. It's not even close. He is a transcendent talent. About a week before that NBA draft happens, though, Doctor gives the physical and finds out that uh, Embiid actually has a broken bone in his foot. Big men, broken feet, injuries, people are very wary of this. This leads to Wiggins going number one to the Cavs, Jabari Parker going number two to the Bucks, and then sitting there at number three for Xavier and I to watch at PubWeb is where we watched that draft, I believe. So I believe we watched the lottery at Buffalo Wild Wings. Yes. At a Sixers draft party, and then I think we watched the draft itself at PubWeb. Yes. I was there for the lottery. I did not come to the draft. I was working on the summer. Day. Right, yeah, the lottery. But it's just at a random Buffalo Wild Wings in, like, what, Northeast Philly, something like that. And it is hysterical how unprepared they were for hundreds of Sixers maniacs coming to that lottery party. They had no idea what they were getting into. I think we gave up on trying to get beers, like... Within probably about 10 minutes of getting in. It wasn't like the Xfinity one that we went to a couple of years later that was much more prepared for that type of atmosphere. But also Xfinity is just the venue that's built for that kind of thing. But Embiid makes the three. 
Sam Hickey doesn't pass up his opportunity. He says, you know what? I have Lenardis Newell, but we're taking best player available. We're taking Joel Embiid at number three. Draft goes along. The Sixers have that top five protected pick that they got from the Pelicans. Ends up being at number 10. So it does convey. They get it. And they use that pick to select Alfred Payton, who is a point guard from Louisiana Lafayette. Immediately after this, this is like so funny, but also horrible to put MCW in that spot. Right after they picked Alfred Payton, a point guard, he said, all right, well, uh, now we got Michael Carter-Williams over here. And uh, Michael, sounds like they might have just drafted your replacement. Uh, what's going on there? MCW did his best to give a good interview. But very quickly, the picture was made clear when Sam shipped Alfred Payton out to the Magic, who had the number 12 pick, in exchange for another future first-round pick. And Dario Saric. Dario Saric is the top European prospect in this draft, the Croatian Wonderkins. But he also says, hey, I think I want to stay in Europe at least one more year, if not two more years. So entering this draft where the common narrative is, okay, the Sixers are finally going to get some of this top-level talent. They're going to have an influx, and they're going to look a lot better next year. Sam said, fuck that. I'm taking two guys that aren't going to play next year. This gets people in an uproar. He also makes some other picks in this draft. So with all the second rounders he accumulated the previous year, drafts KJ McDaniels, had one of the best rookie years you'll ever see, and then went on to do nothing. He had one play where Sam Hinkie, during the Sixers broadcast, he's talking about their player development program in very pragmatic terms. And then KJ McDaniels has his dribble picked up at the foul line and decides, you know what? Let me throw it off the backboard to myself and uh, throw down a quick windmill dunk. The announcers are freaking out, and Sam Hickey just deadpans. That is not part of our player development program. I like to think he was trying to be funny, even if he wasn't. Genuinely hilarious. One more thing that Hickey pulls off shortly into the season here is he signs Robert Covington. Probably ends up being, I think, one of the greatest symbols of Hickey's tenure in that a lot of casual fans hated him, despite the overwhelming evidence that he contributed very, very much to winning basketball with his 3 and D. But it wasn't signing Robert Covington that I think ended up dooming Sam Hinkie. I think what doomed him was a move that he made at the 2015 NBA trade deadline. Now, you have reigning rookie of the year, MCW, and the marketing folks at the Sixers on the business side of it, they had a new campaign called This Starts Now. And the three faces of it were MCW, Nerlens Noel, and Joel Embiid. But... Sam doesn't give a fuck what the marketing campaign is. Sam wants to maximize value. And he thinks MCW is at his absolute peak of value in the NBA right now. So at the trade deadline in 2015, he sends him to Milwaukee for a future first round pick. It's top three protected from the Los Angeles Lakers. This sparks a civil war within the NBA front offices. And it's one that is waged over the course of about a year and ultimately leads to the downfall of Sam. Things get worse over the summer when Joel Embiid re-injures his foot. This is after looking spectacular in drills all summer. He's going to have to get surgery to miss a second season in a row. And this is where I will maintain, this, is, this will be the first time that Sam was done dirty by the Sixers. Everything that I know about Sam Hickey tells me that he wanted to take Kristaps Porzingis at number three. But Kristaps Porzingis is this European guy. He's got a weird, funny name. He's not a sure prospect. The guy who is on the board is the reigning national champion, reigning freshman of the year, and first-team All-American, Jaleel Okafor. Now, 
I can tell you, and I told anybody that I watched basketball with that year, I said Jalil Okafor is not going to succeed at the NBA level. He had a great post game, and in the 1990s, Jalil Okafor, probably an all-star. But, same as we talked about Chris Bosh at the start of this show, the ability to get on the perimeter, defend the pick and roll, Jalil had cement for shoes. It was very obvious, and if it was obvious to me, I have to assume it was obvious to Sam, but it is my belief that Scott O'Neill, uh, who is a fuck, was the CEO of the Sixers, went to ownership and said, make that fucking nerd take the defending national champion player of the year, freshman of the year, or I am going to lose my absolute shit. Scott O'Neill also is known as, um, he's the business guy, he's the CEO guy, but has a reputation in every team he's ever been involved with to poke his nose into the basketball operations. Like, I, I was a captain for my high school team, so uh, I know what I'm talking about. One of those types. At any rate, the little Okafor is drafted. This is a third consecutive year that the Sixers get a center with their top pick. Things aren't looking so hot. In fact, they start off brutally when we get to the season. But before the season started, Sam made, to me, the greatest move of his tenure. And the one that should have shown to everybody why the process makes sense and why you don't waste money signing veterans when you're not trying to push for a title. Because the Sacramento Kings wanted to sign some veterans, but they had no cap space. So Sam Hankey calls up Vladi Divac and he says, hey, you need some cap space? I have plenty of cap space. How about you give me Jason Thompson, Carl Landry, Nick Stauskas. I'll take all that salary off your hands. And all I'm gonna ask for is that you give me one future first round pick and a few pick swaps. Lottie sees this and he sees the opportunity to sign Aaron Aflalo in free agency. And he says, God damn it, Sam, you have yourself a deal. So for literally nothing, the Sixers sent back a top 55 protected second round pick for the next year. The idea was the Sixers have to send some asset. So you send a top 55 protected second rounder, one that obviously will not convey. And then in return, you take on all the salary. So in reality, the way to think of the trade is Kings get salary relief. Sixers get Nick Stauskas, who was just the number nine pick in the draft the year before, and the guaranteed future first, and two years worth of pick swap. We will come back to that. But first, we're going to get into the season. It wasn't a great start to the season. The Sixers started 1-21 and that year. They were 0-18 before winning their first game. It was in Kobe Bryant's last visit to Philadelphia, actually. Sixers won that game to avoid setting the longest losing streak to start an NBA season. But people are getting into Josh Harris's ear. In particular, people at the NBA front offices like Adam Silver and even David Stern. Even though he retired, David Stern and Adam Silver and presumably a lot of owners are just disgusted at what the Sixers are doing here. So they decide to, quote unquote, suggest to Josh Harris... That they bring in Jerry Colangelo. Jerry runs over Team USA Basketball, formerly ran the Suns, but just sitting on his fat ass in Phoenix, not doing anything, in no way connected to the current NBA. But now he is the chairman of basketball operations. So basically, he and Sam work in conjunction. Sam does all the day-to-day, but if Jerry gets an idea for a trade, he's just going to do it. And uh, if Sam wants to do something, Jerry needs to sign off on it. So already on some unsteady ground here. One of the first moves that they do after this is trading two high-end second-round picks. It was their own second-round pick and the New York Knicks second-round pick for Ish Smith, who the Sixers had the year before, and Sam Hickey 
Ish Smith doesn't suit our needs. I'm not going to re-sign him. And then Jerry Colangelo said, no, go ahead and give up two of the best second-rounders you have just to bring him back, even though you just decided you don't want him. The Sixers win some more games because of this, absolutely. But this kind of just indicates the way things are going in Philadelphia. As the season end is approaching, the Sixers have another bright idea. He said, hey, how about Jerry is still the chairman of basketball operations. We're going to bring in another GM to actually make the transactions. And Sam, how about you run analytics? Which like is just such a stupid thing. Like, oh yeah, just go, go to the analytics corner and just do the analytics over there. Fundamentally misunderstanding what it even is that Sam is doing with some of his models. And Sam, of course, balks at this and he says, you know what? I see what's going on here. I'm going to resign. Three days later, Jerry announces that his son, Brian Colangelo, will be the new GM, replacing Sam Hinkie. And Jerry is stepping down as chairman of basketball operations. So the coup has successfully been organized and orchestrated and completed. Sam Hinkie is royally fucked and done extremely dirty by the NBA and the Sixers and forced out before he's able to see any of the process come to fruition. As one last fuck you to Sam from the Colangelos, they leak his resignation letter, which was written to the, the partners of the Sixers, you know, so Josh Harris, all the other owners, Dave Blitzer, Will Smith is still a minority owner. He probably got it. Wish he would have slapped the fuck out of Jerry Colangelo instead of Chris Rock. But anyway, they thought in leaking the resignation letter, it was going to make Sam look bad. This has become basically the gospel for Sixers fans like myself. There are so many just great quotes that reveal Sam's process and the way he views basketball. I just want to go through a few of those real quickly. First of all, on Joel Embiid. There is signal everywhere that Joel is unique, from the practice gyms in Lawrence, Kansas, to Ballot Kenwood, Pennsylvania, to Doha, Qatar, where he does something on sparring far too regularly. I'm talking about how you can achieve success in this field. He said, if you want to have real success, you have to very often be willing to do something different from the herd. Wins are a zero-growth industry. How many of you regularly choose to invest in those? And the only way up is to steal share from your competitors. You will have to do something different. You will have to be contrarian. In, in talking about the way that the media represented his approach, there are plenty of caricatures of our approach on your behalf, the most common of which is that folks here don't even watch the games. There's some mystical way by which we make decisions that doesn't have anything to do with building a basketball team. That's simply untrue. This one's a little fatalistic, but I really like it. So <laughs> Nobel, Prize, Nobel Prize winning physicist Max Planck got right to it. A new scientific truth does not triumph by convincing its opponents and making them see the light, but rather because its opponents eventually die. Truer two words more, never spoken. Two more quotes. The NBA can be a league of desperation, those that are in it and those that can avoid it. So many find themselves caught in the zugzwang, the point in the game where all possible moves make you worse off. Your positioning is now the opposite of that. And finally, it's clear now that I won't see the harvest of the seeds that we planted. That's okay. Life's like that. Many of my NBA friends cautioned me against the kind of seed sowing that felt appropriate given the circumstances for this exact reason. But this particular situation made it all the more necessary though. Part of the reason to reject fear and plow on was exactly because fear had been the dominant motivator of the actions of too many for too long. 
I will be repotted professionally. That is often uncomfortable. Most growth is, but it's also often healthier over the long sweep of history too. It's a 13 page letter. I encourage everybody to read it in its entirety. He misquotes Abraham Lincoln at one point in it, which is fantastic. I think it, it was a quote about, uh, if you give me four hours to chop down a tree, I will spend the first three sharpening my ax. That's not a Lincoln quote, but he thought it was. I still like it, so I give Sam the credit anyway. The cruelest irony of all this is Joel Embiid is now nicknamed The Process because of A, his loyalty to Sam, but also he is somewhat the physical representation of everything that Sam went through. Sam Hinkie never gets to see a single game from the GM chair of Joel Embiid. That to me is the dirtiest of it all. But Joel and by extension Sam is now the singular reason why the Sixers enter each season as contenders. From the second he stepped on the floor his rookie year, very obvious that as Sam referenced, everything that was going on in those gyms manifested on the court. And it crushes me that Sam never got to realize that while a member of the organization. Even after he leaves the Sixers though, he mentioned in his letter, your position is now the opposite of one where all moves make the team worse. Brian Colangelo tried his damnedest. He really did. And he almost ruined it for all of us. The best example of this is the pick swap that I mentioned with the Kings. That did in fact convey in 2017. Sixers moved up to the number three pick versus they would have had the fifth pick because of pick swap that Sam got. Because of this, they are now at three. They paired number three with the pick that they got from the Michael Carter-Williams trade. Trade up to number one and get the final piece of the process to make everything fit together, Markel Fultz. The happy ending. There we go. Two elite assets that Sam got that did not convey for years after he was gone. Brian Colangelo fucks it up. Yes, did I love Markel Fultz and did I want to do the trade and was I happy we got him at the time? Absolutely, yes. But right now, we're on this podcast and we have the benefit of hindsight. And I can say, Brian Colangelo, moron. Why would you do that? Could have taken Tatum at one. But that was never going to go down that way. The last of the, the relics of Hinky came to be in the 2021 draft when the last of the second rounders that Sam acquired, again, resigned in 2016, in 2021, the last pick that he acquired is finally conveyed and made by the Sixers. And uh, they took Philippe Petrosev, who sucks ass and is not ever going to come over. <laughs> sad but, trombone noise. Very sad trombone. It's just, it kills me how dirty he was done because, like, in no capacity has Sam Hinkie been welcomed back to a Sixers game. He has not been to a Sixers game since he resigned. Despite Joel Embiid's love for him and, you know, Joel Embiid to this day, if you ask him, he'll say, Hinky's the reason I didn't retire after my brother died. The only thing I'm holding out hope for is that the first home game of the NBA Finals, if when the Sixers finally make it with Joel Embiid, the bell ringer has to be Sam Hinky. It just has to be. I, like, that would be my personal NBA championship. I don't even need us to win the series at that point. But the Sixers tuck their tail between their legs and say, you know what? We did Sam Hinkie incredibly dirty. That is the one thing that would make me feel whole. Before I wrap, very briefly, what has Sam been up to since then? He did advise the Denver Broncos for a period of time uh, before he started his own venture capital firm, which is 87 Capital, which notably is one digit higher in both the tens and the ones point than 76. So some shade, I don't know. 
not my place to say, but I like to think that little calculator nerd ran the numbers and decided that he was that much better than the 76ers. Sam Hankey, geniuses are often misunderstood in their time, and I think Sam Hankey was incredibly misunderstood, but will ultimately be vindicated if, when, the Joel Embiid-led Sixers win a championship. What a tragic backstabbing. I do want to mention, too, so it's interesting the way that this all worked out. Sam Hinkie once traded for JaVale McGee on a salary dump move. In so doing, picked up a top 20 protected Oklahoma City first rounder. The Sixers eventually sent this back out, but it came back to the Sixers when they sent Markel Fultz to Orlando for that top 20 protected OKC pick, which conveyed at 21 and became Tyrese Maxey. So, am I also going to give... Sam Hickey credit for Tyrese Maxey being on the Sixers. <laughs> Absolutely. Sam done incredibly dirty, but to me, I've always loved the Sixers. I got so into the Sixers in that era just because, to his point, he had the bravery to cast away fear and think big and think different. That spoke to a lot of people. It spoke to me. And I just wish that Josh Harris was not a spineless coward and would have told the NBA to fuck off when they hoisted the Colangelo coup upon us. When you held that A for a second, I thought you were going to say A live. I could have. I just, I just be the last thing I'm going to say on this. I was still working at my restaurant when Sam Hickey resigned. And I remember like, I got the alert on my phone as I was in the back. I checked and like, I just went to my manager. I was like, I got to go to my car for like 20 minutes. And <laughs> I cried my eyes out. I couldn't believe it. I was so upset. So yet about a week period after that, James, where, where my murderous rage could have easily kicked in had I seen a Colangelo face to face. But thankfully that didn't happen. And uh, because of that, I'm still here to, to do this podcast with you fine folks. Well, there you go. And, you know, Sam Hickey may have resigned, but Xavier, I don't think you're resigned to taking this one land down. I think you've got a good guy in the chamber to try and beat us out here. So, James, I'm glad that we had Diaz go second because there's going to be some weird parallels between your guy and mine, and I'm happy that it wasn't back-to-back. Today, I want to talk about possibly the greatest female American distance runner that I bet most people in our generation have never heard of, Mary Decker. Mary Teresa Decker was born on August 4th, 1958 in Bunvale, New Jersey. At the age of 10, her family moved to Garden Grove, California in Orange County, where she started running because, quote, there was nothing else to do. Yeah, apparently living in the sticks gets you athletic as hell. By 11, she had won her first local competition, and by 12, she had completed a marathon and four middle-to-long-distance races in the same week. That ended with her needing an appendectomy. Apparently, because of, like... Apparently, way too much exercise can cause stress on organs that can lead to stuff like that. There's no definitive link that this is the reason, but after she ran all of these races, she did need to get an appendectomy right afterwards. Less weight to carry around. By age 14, a pigtailed 89-pound Decker, who was nicknamed Little Mary, De- Little Mary Decker, was considered a world-class runner already. Unfortunately, she was too young to compete in the Munich Olympics in August of 1972 because she did not reach the cutoff which was 15 but turning 16 in that year, so she was not old enough to compete yet. She'd have to wait to explode onto the world stage. Next year, 73, 
she gets to go to Minsk to compete in a Soviet meet. At this meet, the still 14-year-old Decker beats the reigning Olympic silver medalist Nicole Sabait to win the 800-meter race. So she's beating an Olympic silver medalist already at 14. She also has an incident where, in a different race during a relay, a much older Soviet opponent passed her and tried to cut too sharply to cut her off and elbowed her. Decker did what 14-year-olds do. She threw her baton at the Soviet runner and started screaming. I mean, I'm in full support of that. Listen, my kind of like theory with like playing any sport or anything is like, look, I'm not going to start shit. But if you start shit, I'm better at shit than you are. You know, a lot of Americans liked it because of hatred of the Soviet. They're like, you know what? This 14-year-old girl did what we wish we could do. Throw something at a Soviet. It, it, it didn't hurt her career doing this. In 1973, she also gains her first world record. Again, still 14. She runs an indoor mile at 4 minutes, 40 seconds, and one-tenth of a second. By 1974, she's the world indoor record holder in the 800. Two minutes, one second, and eight-tenths of a second. Unfortunately, this level of running doesn't come without a cost. Steve Prefontaine, one of the greatest runners of all time, noted that she was so young, people need to be careful with her. Her future could go up in smoke if she's pushed too hard. I couldn't believe her training schedule. His words are prescient. By the end of 1974, Becker is suffering from severe compartment syndrome. This leads to a series of injuries, including stress fractures in her legs, which keeps her from being able to compete in the 1976 Montreal Olympics. Decker undergoes at least three operations to cure compartment syndrome and is kept out of competition for a while. But then she recovers and goes to UC Boulder on a track scholarship. 1979, she becomes the second American woman to break the four-minute, 30-second mile. Then, after tearing a muscle in her back and needing half a year to recover, in early 1980, she allegedly became the first woman to break the four-minute and 20-second mile with a time of 4.17.55, this time was not ratified by the IAAF. And now she's all set to go to the Olympics, I bet. Now still only 21 and healthy, Decker is ready to finally get her a chance at the Olympics. James, why doesn't she get to go to the Olympics in 1980? Because the United States is boycotting it. For the record, that is due to the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Indeed. So, you know, she does get uh, one of the congressional gold medals that was given to all athletes who would have been on the 1980 U.S. team to recognize their efforts. But this is her third Olympics that she has missed either due to injury or rules, not due to her own talent. So that sucks. Instead of competing in the Olympics, she just does some competitions in Europe. Running competitions in Europe are apparently the big summer thing for, for runners, they will just go to Europe for June, July, August, and then fly back to wherever they're from afterwards after just doing a tour of the continent. During this process, she strains her Achilles that requires surgery and gets almost a year-long recovery. But she's still young. She's still got shit to prove. In 1981, she gets married to fellow distance runner Ron Tab, a very accomplished marathon runner. And then 1982, under the name Mary Tab. She sets a world record running the mile in 4.18.08. This is one of seven world records she sets in 1982. She breaks her own mile record four times and also sets records in the 3,000, 5,000, and 10,000. The story of the 10,000 is actually wild because she's had a bunch of injuries in the past. She's over in Europe competing with her husband, and they decide that they should take things easy to keep her from getting hurt again. 
So they return home to Oregon for a three-week break. They're not supposed to do anything for, for three weeks. Morning after they get back, she finds out that Oregon is hosting a women's 10,000 meter that night. And she's restless. So she calls her coach to ask if she can go compete in it. Coach says, as long as you don't wear spikes, you have to run in flats. You drop out if you get tired. And you promise that you will not run at all for a week afterwards. You can go. Despite her dislike of wearing flats for running and her original plan to kind of just hang back and have a nice jog, she crushes the competition and sets a world record. For her incredible year, she gets awarded the James E. Sullivan Award for the Best Amateur Athlete in the U.S. For context, 1981, it's won by Carl Lewis. Most recent winner we have, 2021, it was dual award, went to Simone Biles and Caleb Dressel. So this, this is like the best award you could win if you're an amateur athlete. Also, shout out Sean Johnson, who won this award in 2008. So 1983, things aren't going well between her and Ron, and they get divorced. That's not going to stop now Mary Decker again from continuing her dominance. 1983 World Championships in Helsinki. This is her first time competing in the full World Championships. A lot of, they didn't have events for women at that time, sexism stuff that you would expect from the 70s to 80s. Despite worries about how she would hold up running in packs or competing against the best in the world, she starts off by winning the gold in the 3,000 meter. Four days later, in the 1500, Soviet champion Zamira Zatsaeva tries to break Decker off her stride. She's constantly elbowing her and stepping on her foot to essentially try to distract her. Because they're running in such close packs that you can do this and it won't really be seen too much. Decker said, quote, I thought about taking a swing at her. But then I worried about being disqualified, too. I was conscious of the U.S. versus USSR thing there a little. But it's lucky I didn't have a relay baton this time. I might have thrown it again. (laughs) But the harassing doesn't work. Even though Decker lost her temper, she channeled that into running and, quote, caught her because I was so angry and won the race, completing her double. The headline double-decker was used in many newspapers and Sports Illustrated magazine. She also set a U.S. record in the 1500 that year at a competition in Stockholm, record which would stand for 32 years overall she goes undefeated in 20 finals across all competitions three indoor 16 outdoor and one road race by the end of the year she held the american women's record in every distance from 800 meters to 10,000 meters and was named sports illustrated sportswoman of the year the most prestigious award as greg lamond would know okay there's some parallels <laughs> you, you you're right so now really considered the best in the world, Decker is considered the odds-on favorite at the 1984 Olympics. Either of you know where the 1984 Olympics are held? LA. They're held in LA. And the 3,000 meter is being held in the LA Memorial Coliseum less than 30 minutes from where she grows up. Everyone's expecting her to win this. For a bit of background, her main competition was picked to be Marikisha Pucha of Romania, who had set the fastest time in the lead-up to the event. But the media was fixated on... Decker versus a different competitor, a woman named Zola Budd of Great Britain. Budd was an 18-year-old barefoot runner who had broken Decker's 5,000-meter record the previous year. She was actually South African, and because of apartheid, South Africans were banned from international competition, uh, and the IAF refused to ratify her time as a world record. So she was not allowed to compete in the Olympics, but a British tabloid, the Daily Mail, pushed her father to have her apply for British citizenship so she could race for Britain at the Olympics. And despite massive, massive public protest, they fast-tracked her application and give her citizenship 
just in time so she can race for them, completely going against every single anti-apartheid protest that was going on at the time. Bud said at the time when she came to to Britain, people wanted to interview about these things. She had no idea who Nelson Mandela was. That's pretty bad. I mean, as a citizen of the world, let alone... A citizen of South Africa! Yeah, let alone that, yeah. So at the, at the race, Decker, Pucha, and Bud all start fast. By the 1,500-meter mark, so halfway, the three-plus Wendy Smith Sly of Britain separate into a clear pack at the front. Bud and Decker were kind of changing off first and second. At this point, with Bud in first and Decker in second, the two started making slight contact with each other. Decker's spikes land on the back of Bud's ankle, causing blood to dry because, again, Bud is not wearing shoes. But both stay upright. Both are, you know, still doing fine. At the 457 mark, Bud cuts across to get in front of Decker because right now, at this point, they're kind of running diagonal with Bud in front, but Decker on the inside lane slightly behind. And so Bud cuts across. Both not being used to being in a pack, they collide. Bud trips but maintains her balance. Decker falls. She falls hard into the infield grass and is just stuck there crying in pain. She suffers a torn groin and hip socket injury and has to be carried off the track by then-boyfriend, strongest Briton in the world, Richard Slaney. That's not me editorializing. He actually won the, the British strongman in both 1980 and 1982, so he was the strongest Briton in the world. So she's done. She's out. Bud is getting booed so hard by the crowd, she just kind of stops running and finishes in seventh, and Pucha wins. After the race, Decker is blaming Bud for obstructing her. Track officials initially disqualified Bud, then reinstated her after reviewing film of the race. Despite that, a number of sports journalists supported Decker's claim, stated that Bud had bumped into her leg while cutting in front, but nothing's changing it now. For a while, Decker claimed that Bud had robbed her of her gold medal, and got a reputation as kind of the bad boy slash bad girl of, of racing because while she's out injured, she's just complaining a lot because she's like, after all this, I feel like I got screwed. Fellow American Ruth Waisaki called her out and said that she should apologize to Zola Bud for spending nothing but months trashing her. Instead, she comes back in January of 1985. In her first race, she faces off against Waisaki and crushes her, finishing 12 seconds ahead in the 2000 setting another world record, which she stated was a wedding present to now-husband Richard Slaney. They had just gotten married three weeks before. Becker finally gets a chance to go up against Bud again at the Crystal Palace Sports Center in London in summer of 1985. In a 3,000-meter race, she wins while Bud finishes fourth. The two did shake hands afterward, tried to bury the hatchet. Much later in life, Decker has become more retrospective and said that fault wasn't Bud's fault. Quote, the reason I fell, some people think she tripped me deliberately. I happen to know that wasn't the case. The reason I fell is because I am and was very inexperienced in running in a pack. I don't know if you've ever watched how these long distance track runners are. They are so closely bunched together because they know what line they have to run to get the best time. that They literally look like they're on top of each other, also running at top speed. So the fact that both of them had been so inexperienced running in packs because they're usually so much ahead of each other. Stuff like this can happen. We've seen stuff like this in speed skating, where if you're that close together, things can happen, as unfortunate as it is. 1985, another very successful season for Decker. 
She wins 12 races, sets a world record for the women's mile in Zurich with a 4.16.71, in a race where she beats both Bud and Pucha. This time is still in the top 10 all time for women 40 years later. An incredible mark. You would think that with all of the things that have changed in sports science, that marks from 40 years ago would not be even anywhere close to where they are now, but no, it, it's still right up there. 1986, she doesn't continue her dominance because she sits out the whole year she's giving birth to her daughter, Ashley. Then she gets hurt and misses all of 1987. She tries to recover in time for the 1988 Olympics at Seoul. And, this, and she qualifies. And this time she doesn't get hurt and is able to compete. But she hasn't had enough ramp-up time to really get into her stride. And it finishes 8th and 10th at the 1,500 and 3,000 respectively. And this is really kind of the end of her as a top runner. Falls off. She tries to qualify for the 92 Barcelona Olympics. Can't. Then tries a late career comeback for the 1996 Atlanta Olympics. She is 38 years old at this point. She starts training with famed trainer Alberto Salazar, considered the best track trainer in the world, and was head of the Nike Oregon Project. He later gets banned for life for doping allegations and sexual-slash-emotional misconduct allegations. Yes, there is doping in the story too, James. Oh, but he had to do the double duty of also adding sexual assault. That's less fun. Yeah. Decker does dispute that he was her trainer. She says they were friends and they ran together a lot, which is fair because the running communities are kind of small for that level of long-distance runner. So at age 38, she qualifies for the Olympics. But at the Olympic trials, a urine test shows a greater testosterone to epitestosterone ratio than allowed. This is where things get granular. She argues that the TDE ratio test is unreliable for women, especially for women in their late 30s taking birth control. And she actually gets allowed to compete at the Olympics anyway, where she does get eliminated in the trials, just can't keep up with the younger racers. Side note, she is tested significantly at the actual Olympics, like the heats, passes all of those. 1997, at this point, she's not really even running much anymore. Her Olympic comeback has, has failed. She gets retroactively banned after the IAF gets annoyed that USA Track and Field hasn't made any rulings yet over whether she actually took banned substances. She gets reinstated by the USATF later at a doping hearing pan uh, board panel because they determined that her birth control and drinking alcohol before the test could have inflated the TE ratio. Then the IAF clears her to compete after the USATF has made this. During this time, she does win a silver medal at the World Indoor Championships. But then, IAF takes the case to arbitration and retroactively strips her of this despite having cleared her to compete, ruling that she would have to prove by clear and convincing physical evidence that the alcohol and birth control was the reason why her level was high, which at that point was scientifically impossible to do. She sues both the IAF and the US IOC over this, then gets dismissed due to lack of jurisdiction because of some weird rules with who can actually sue the Olympics in, in like in international organizations. To this day, she maintains she never used any performance-enhancing drugs. And just as a bit of background, they could not detect testosterone in the blood at this time, which is why they used the ratio test. So she never actually tested positive for a banned substance. It was just the ratio was not what they had as a limit. 
and they've changed these tests since then. So new ratios are used. And if you're elevated, then they have you do a separate test, actually determining if there's something in there. So I'm not saying that she didn't do any performance enhancing drugs, just that there is a lot of questioning over whether or not this test actually is valid for women in their 30s using birth control. She still 100% says that she never used any performance enhancing drugs. And her husband, who is the 6'7", 300-pound, world's strongest man, is like, yeah, I've seen a lot of people do performance enhancing drugs. I've never seen her do it. I've never heard anyone talk to her about it. But by this point, done with the doping controversy, she's had even more surgeries, more than 30 in total, because her body is just destroyed. She wants to compete as a marathon runner, but she can't. her body can't take it. Her legs can't take it. So she ends up retiring, moves back to Eugene, Oregon with Richard, where they go on jogs and he refurbishes antique planes and fun crap like that. That's totally real. I did not make that up. Uh, Sounds like what you do in Eugene, Oregon. She does eventually make peace with USA Track and Field, even though she had sued them previously. And she does get inducted into the National Track and Field Hall of Fame in 2003, along with John Carlos. Good class. Yeah, it was a very good class. Mary Decker had an extremely long career for runners, but because of boycott and age restrictions and unfortunate injuries, is possibly the best distance runner to never even medal at the Olympics. Yeah, like what? Almost went to 72 and then did qualify for 96. That's an insanely long time. Yeah. A, a Torresian? Is that, is that how I want to say that? I was going to say... Torresian would be correct, yes. Torresian. I was going to say, like, Durarian, but that's, that, doesn't sound, <laughs> that doesn't really roll off the tongue there, does it? Torresian. Yeah, but imagine Dara Torres never won a, a, a single Olympic medal of any, of any color. That of the, what, 12 that she did? So I'm insulted you don't have this memorized, Xavier. <laughs> I apologize. It's been, it's been a while. I, I need to brush up my Dara Torres uh, knowledge. But Mary Decker... Done dirty by injuries, age requirements, Soviet invasions, doping tests not being able to correctly construe women because science has always been bad to women and testing women. That, that is who I brought today. It's a good guy. It's a good guy. It's three good guys. And, and I think it's a tough call. I am compelled by the extent to which someone like Sam Hinkie, who has been betrayed has to watch this sort of vindication without vindication. So it's a strong mark in that favor. I'm, I'm compelled by Mary. Just the sheer number of different forces working against her. Greg LeMond probably got, or his enemies at least, got the most comeuppance. So I'll, I'll acknowledge that. But it's tough between those other two. Greg is definitely vindicated. I do want to say before we get too far into this, I did check. Dara, 12 medals, four of each color. Um, okay, so I was right. I was right. No, you were there. You were right there. Mary Decker was right there, too. In fact, she gets tripped up with her best chance at gold. And, I, and you said she was like a heavy favorite to, to take gold that year, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she essentially was at home. She was the best in the world at home. And remember, the person yeah. who, I'm not going to say tripped her because the current belief is that it was just two people inexperienced in that situation coming together. But she also probably shouldn't have been allowed to compete because of it being a fake citizenship thing to get around apartheid restrictions. 
Yeah, the fact she didn't know who the most important figure in the history of South Africa was is pretty, pretty fucking horrific. I can't even think, like, what the American equivalent would be. Because, like, George Washington, like, I don't really give a shit about that guy. <laughs> but every, everybody fucking loves Nelson Mandela. So that's, that's rough to not know who he is. Yeah, to your point, James, with Lamond, I think he probably had to endure the longest period of scorn within his field, but also has had that vindication to have been proven fully right and still is able to, uh, you know, retain all of his honors and his medals and his championships. This so, is fair. He, he has not, you know, been able to get back to strong sales of his bike line, and Lance Armstrong also still has a lot of money. Lamont did get shot. And he did get shot. That was an accident, but he does still have 35 pellets in his body to this day. 50 cent eat your heart out. You thought getting shot eight times is crazy. Is it, did you count that as once or 35 times? It's 35 different entry wounds. It's, it's one individual shooting. With 35 many. distinct wounds. Minimum. I mean, that's what's left in yes. there. So probably several more distinct right. wounds. But This is the tough one. I like, I like everybody this week. This is what happens when we give ourselves three weeks to prepare. Yeah, we had a lot of time. We also... Yeah, we had, Literally a lot of time. I think this is probably our longest recording. I don't, I don't know how the raw file is going to come. Oh, out by quite a margin. By quite. Kevin, a you, margin. you hear that? This is making up for that week we missed. Mm. <sighs> I'll be the one to go out there and say, I'm, I'm feeling Lamont. I can get down with Lamont, but to be honest, the only one that I wasn't super enamored with was Hinky. But that's also because we're so biased because we live in well, not James anymore, but we live in a place where. Hinky is still beloved, so he doesn't feel like a guy to me, as I've said, but I think Greg LeMond would be great. I mean, I'll, I'd be more than happy to vote for Greg LeMond. I think he is, to this day, the greatest American cyclist of all time. Certainly the record books indicate that he is the greatest American cyclist of all time. <laughs> now they do. How many people got disqualified from winning the Tour de France? I mean, Armstrong alone is six. I feel like it's got to be like 10 to 15 people just... Or at least 10 to 15 years, if not more, where there's just like, there's technically no winner of the Tour de France. It's just a consecutive decade of like, oh yeah, sorry, uh, nobody won. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, uh, it's bad. It's a bad problem in the sport. So, I mean, hey, if we're going to take a moment to acknowledge one guy who was a, a crusader against it, then I will gladly throw my lot in with Greg Lamont. Well, with that being the case... I think, you know, we, we don't need to spin our wheels any further. We've gone through a few different stages of debate here. And as we reach the end of our tour, I think it is time. <laughs> Trial. Uh, bike, wheel. Okay, I'm not going to shoehorn in any more oh bad references. But what I will do is I will gladly welcome in Le Merican, Gregory James Lamond, into the Hall of God. Welcome, Greg Lamont. And if I may, uh, Diaz, shift gears real quick. One thing I've been thinking is you should go watch Tour de Pharmacy. It's still for now, at least, until Warner Brothers destroys everything available on HBO Max. It's incredible. And it's not as much of a parody of the actual drugs being taken as you might think. Also, hey, I mean, do the two of you want to plug your recent guest appearance on a different show? It's not guest uh, appearance for him. So... Only available on SoundCloud, folks. But uh, if 
you can't get enough of listening to me talk and ramble on. We've started a podcast for the Dynasty Football League that Xavier and I are both in, uh, only available on SoundCloud. Look up the OG Dynasty Podcast. I'm sure there's been other Dynasty Podcasts before, but ours is the OG League, and we're calling ourselves the OG Dynasty Podcast. So mostly just musings about our league, but I mean, we talk about a lot of players, you know, the projections that we see. And I like to think we have a unique, fun league. So if, you, if you've played fantasy football before and you're not really sure about Dynasty, uh, we're in year eight of that league, year one of the podcast, and uh, you know, having a good time talking about it. So feel free to check that out. There you go. That'll fill out the rest of your week's schedule. Hopefully by the time you hear this, the Las Vegas Aces are your WNBA champions. But if not, hey, we got a great game five to look forward to. That's all I got this week, folks. Thank you for joining us. You guys got anything else for us? No more puns, please. Well, let's pump the brakes then. I've been James. I've been the pun-hating, very special guest, Xavier. And I'm Diaz. And as Sam Hinkie said in his famous resignation letter, this story underscores what our players, particularly our best players, are in the greatest need of. Guys. That was terrible.